0: a continuing slow drip and rising calls for house speaker glenn cassada's resignation this is the week of may 13th welcome to grand divisions i'm joel ebert
1: and i'm natalie allison
0: all right a lot has happened in the last week uh we've seen uh new developments ranging from uh new uh, you know, allegations against the Speaker's office to uh, members and and Republicans calling for the Speaker to resign. Natalie, uh, let's start off initially uh, with some of the biggest news that has been after several days of sort of hemming and hawing, uh, Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally first, and then uh, Governor uh, Bill Lee came out a little bit stronger in their opposition for Glenn Cassidy staying in his same role.
1: Yeah, so that that happened late last week. Uh, it was sort of this <laughs> day-by-day development that was unfolding in pieces. You know, earlier in the week they were, um, they didn't say anything, you know, right after the news broke, uh, I think it was Monday night, and then, you know, throughout Tuesday and Wednesday sort of issued these, um, you know, fairly tepid statements saying, you know, this is this is concerning, but this is an issue for the House to take up. Um, on Thursday, both the Lieutenant Governor and the Governor um essentially answered a question about if if Casta was in your chamber, so that would be in the case of McNally or in the case of the Governor, if Casta was in your administration, would you call on him to resign? And they both said yes. Um, so that was that was stronger than they had been. The next day, McNally went a step further by saying yes, I think in general, Speaker Kashida should resign from his his leadership position, uh, no longer speaking in hypotheticals.
0: It certainly was, you know, a difficult time for them to slowly peel off that bandit. And I think, you know, as history looks back on it, people are going to forget that it took three to four days uh, to finally make that call. But, you know, initially the reaction, uh, some would criticize and say, Uh, It's tepid at best and, you know, at worst, it's shirking their leadership duties. Um, Again, let readers and history be the uh, decider on on both of those. But that has led to a couple of more members. There have been a handful of members in the early period calling for resignations. Uh, Now you have some more recently, Natalie. uh, I know that you had reported, I think, just yesterday about uh, one that you hadn't heard from directly, but you had an email of, right?
1: Yeah. So the, over the weekend and on Monday, there was, you know, another trickle of new Republican legislators in the House who were coming out against Casada. Uh, the email you're referring to was sent by Representative Jerome Moon uh, to a constituent, um, he, and in that email, the constituent had reached out to him and said, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to call on Casta to resign? He replied to this constituent saying, uh, you need to call and email the governor. He can call a special session to remove the speaker, which is what needs to be done. I reached out to Representative Moon. He didn't get back to to us, but we did report what he had said in that email. Uh, Terry Lynn Weaver, she's she's another uh, representative who Casta had made a, a chairman of a committee and uh, had mostly shown support for Casada. You know, there was some uh, issues with her supporting vouchers, but for the most part was not seen as a defector by any means uh, under the Casada administration. She came out late last week uh, saying that she did think he needed to resign. Uh, then just uh, Monday night, Curtis Johnson, who of course had run against Casada and the, the caucus race for speaker, he said that he saw Uh, the most recent, uh, Phil Williams report that night in which, uh, there were some texts where Casta was inquiring about whether a couple young women were of age. And he said that that was, that was just enough for him that he, he did need to speak out publicly.
0: So as of this recording about eight or nine, if you count Jerome Moon, uh, Republicans within the House caucus have called for the Speaker to resign. Thus far, we are waiting to find out when this caucus meeting will be. It could be as early as next week. It sounds like there is some scheduling uh, issues that are going on, but at least the plans are to have a, a, an early caucus meeting. And, and so far, there hasn't been sort of an agenda set. Uh, presumably, it would include a vote of confidence or no confidence in the Speaker as originally intended or asked for by um, Republican Representative Jerry Sexton, who initially raised this issue on a, a phone call last week.
1: Yeah. And, and while there's there's sort of an eight or nine who have come out and said in some way or another, they, they definitely think the speaker should be removed. There are others who have said they're concerned and they find it disturbing. You know, people like uh, Jeremy Zachary or Ron Gant, um, who haven't come out and said the speaker needs to step down, but have made it known that they have concerns and they've called for this caucus meeting in which, you know, one would – Presume that the, at the caucus meeting they would probably be voting against the speaker remaining in his position if they've already gone out and said, you know, we find this disturbing. Uh, so we don't, we don't, we don't know the vote count. We don't know how many people in in his caucus um, are are turning against him right now. Nor do we know how many people are for him. He has insisted as as recently as yesterday on Monday that uh, he has quote overwhelming support. Uh, in his caucus, still, uh, the speaker hasn't said how many how many people are supporting him.
0: Of course, these are all Republicans we're referring to. Uh, yesterday, Natalie, you were at a meeting. Uh, between uh, the Speaker and the Black Caucus, uh, or members of the Black Caucus, Uh, this meeting essentially came out of the Speaker's late uh, uh, last week action plan that he outlined, where he said he was going to do a number of things, including meeting with members of the Black Caucus to talk about uh, the culture at the legislature, which is really a a remarkable acknowledgement by the Speaker. In the past, he's really denied that there's issues with the, the culture, but on a phone call with his uh, own Republican colleagues. He admitted that their uh, sexual harassment culture at the Capitol has been an issue for decades, and he also, uh, with this meeting, acknowledged that there is uh, possibly a, a, a culture of racism at the Capitol.
1: Yeah, it was a six-hour meeting. The Black Caucus met for six hours in a fourth-floor conference room Monday. Uh, the Speaker was in there for about two hours, the first two hours. Uh, they they talked with each other. They heard from the director of the the legislature's um, information system department with questions about the justin jones email situation you know did did the speaker's office receive the email you know before or after the the bond condition date uh they they did all of that they met and then they they emerged sometime after six o'clock and and announced that they had finally decided they had finally reached some kind of consensus that they could not support the speaker they he didn't answer all the questions that they had uh, they they Questioned his sincerity. Um, G. A. Hardaway, he's the the chairman of the Black Caucus, made a a pretty l- vague comment alluding to them having information that that something else is going to come out. He declined to elaborate on what he meant, uh, so I don't know what what he meant by that. But they did finally take that stance, calling on the speaker to step down. Um, it was interesting, you know, the the speaker's had sort of changed his tune when when the racist text messages involving Cade, some of which the speaker was included on, first came out a couple weeks ago, Uh a question whether they were real and said that doesn't sound like Cade, that doesn't sound like something he would send, uh, had uh, originally resorted to sort of attacking the leaker uh, of those texts, saying it was some guy who lives in his parents' basement who's a liberal uh, activist or something like that. Um, and then you had on Monday him... You know, confirming these are real texts and these were disturbing to me when I saw them. So, sort of a change of rhetoric there uh, from the speaker. But ultimately, I guess it didn't really matter because the Black Caucus. did not stand by him. Uh,
0: the rhetoric that the uh, the speaker has used throughout this, um, I, I reported on a story recently, really kind of harkens back to what he had said previously in 2016 when he was facing another controversy, and that one had to do with a, an anonymous blog video. Essentially, he was just kind of rallying the troops. So the speaker, you know, his rhetoric has in some instances shifted. In other instances, it's solidified what he has previously said if, when facing op- opposition. Uh, one of the other new elements that he had was in this action plan was to call for an ethics committee review of his handling of his chief of staff's, uh, firing. Uh, Natalie, you reported a little bit more on that yesterday, but it sounds like there's more to come.
1: Yeah. So it seems like, uh, the ethics committee had a whole plan to, to get the meeting done Monday, um, which would have been, you know, the first business day after the speaker had called for that investigation on Friday. Um, you know matthew hill he 's a chairman of the ethics committee drove the you know four four and a half hours whatever it is. Uh, from Jonesboro up to Nashville. Got a per um, diem
0: for it, but yes.
1: <laughs> and he ended up turning around that afternoon and driving back because um, he met individually with me- with members of the ethics committee throughout the morning. Uh, I, what I understand from what he told me, he was showing them um, this letter or this report that I guess had already been drafted, seeking their input. Uh, the question was whether the speaker had properly handled uh, circumstances surrounding the resignation of Cade Cothran. Again, no one really knows why that matters. It seems like that is a, a very small drop in the bucket when you when you look at what's going on. But uh, that, of course, that is what the speaker had asked the ethics committee to investigate. Uh, it seems like there's so many other things that could have been investigated. But anyway, uh, the ethics committee did meet or was going to meet about that in the afternoon after these sort of individual pre-meetings Matthew Hill was having with them. Um, after a Democratic member of the committee, Darren Jernigan, had raised the question of whether they could have the meeting after looking at the rules and saying, it looks like we need to have announced this to the public, um, the, a chief clerk gave an opinion to to Matthew Hill saying, yeah, you guys should should announce this meeting ahead of time. So they called it off. So the ethics committee has not given its advisory opinion that the speaker asked for in his action plan.
0: Of course, all of this is happening with the backdrop of the potential for House Speaker Glenn Cassida to be forced to resign. Uh, it's not clear, even if the caucus were to vote and say we have no confidence in him, whether the speaker would follow that. Uh, there is no actual obligation that he does that. Uh, that would be just sort of doing Republicans a solid, if you will. Um, yeah. There, There is no rule that essentially says that that must be done. There is, of course, a an 18... 18- 93 uh, precedent, I believe, where there was sort of a similar circumstance where where members were frustrated. They passed a resolution yes. to remove the speaker. So that is a possible uh, uh, you know, precedent. We haven't but gotten to,
1: to write about Ralph Davis yet, we? Have we haven't, no. But we need to tell the story sometime of Ralph Davis.
0: We'll get to it, I think, eventually. Uh, but one of the issues is the Constitution has changed since then, so it's possible that there has been new machinations of state code and law that would not allow a similar process but of course all of this is with the idea of if the speaker goes down the, or or leaves in some capacity, he would immediately be replaced uh, by Bill Dunn, who is a, a Knoxville representative who um, has already called for the Speaker to step down. But
1: essentially we also have, I mean, some people are bringing up the scenario in which it, there could be every member in, in the caucus or in the House calling for his resignation and he has said he won't resign. As you mentioned, if there is no mechanism for actually forcing him out, we could have a situation where he... Could even be expelled from the legislature and still remain the speaker.
0: You do not need to be a member of the legislature to be speaker, FYI, listeners. So, so it, it could
1: it could get crazy. You know, it, this whole thing could blow over. Everyone could, you know, be fine with him staying at some point, or you know, maybe he'll he'll step down on his own. But this could be a, this could be a pretty wild scenario if that did happen.
0: There are a host of other things to cover, but one of them before we move on to another section of the podcast is a very unusual story that um, I wrote uh, sometime last week in the whirlwind of them and basically had three parts to it. Uh, the speaker's office had um, uh, white noise machines installed at some point. Um, Kate Cothran, the former chief of staff to the house speaker, told me at one point during the legislative session that he had the ability to listen in on any committee rooms whether they were meeting or not and the third part was essentially uh, members had been so concerned that they may have been their offices may have been bugged that a couple of them actually had their their offices swept for any uh, recording devices. The story was really, uh, I felt kind of like a crazy person writing about it but um, we went to Print with it, and it immediately caused the stir to the point of uh, Mike Stewart, the House Minority Caucus Chairman, and Bo Mitchell, uh, of course, a Nashville Democrat, they immediately called for an FBI investigation into the matter because they were so concerned about it. Uh, it was kind of an unusual press conference. Uh, they said, Uh, They pointed out it's not every day that you have, you know, requests for the FBI to investigate um, the the legislature, essentially. Uh, And that was sort of the second or the first of two instances that we heard about the FBI last week. What was the other, Natalie?
1: Well, the other was a Phil Williams story with News Channel 5. He has also been covering uh, the the text message scandal that's ongoing. Uh, But he reported without any clear... Attribution. So we still are unsure where this is coming from. He reported that uh, the FBI was was questioning members about whether anyone was offered uh, any kind of illegal incentives to flip on their voucher vote uh, with the recent ESA bill. We uh, we've we've talked to the members. We've asked around. We've uh, talked to the speaker's office and the governor's office. Everyone we've spoken to has denied having heard. From the FBI, uh, Cameron Sexton, he's the Republican caucus chairman. He said, um, you know, on the record late last week to the Daily Memphian, and I followed up with him on Monday about this, that he does believe that um, some members have been questioned by the FBI. That's what he's heard. He did said he did not know who or how many or any details of that. But he, he did seem to believe there was there could be some truth to that.
0: Again, we will try and stay on top of all of this, um, including the latest list of of Republicans who have called for... Uh, the Speaker to resign, and that includes Glenn Jacobs, the Knox County mayor, a couple of radio personalities, Phil Valentine and Brian Wilson. You even had uh, Senators Marsha Blackburn and uh, Lamar Alexander weigh in. They did not call for the Speaker to resign, but they certainly uh, tapped their toes into the water. Uh, We will try and stay on top of this and keep you informed as best as possible. So keep checking our various websites for more information.
1: On Thursday, Tennessee death row inmate Donnie Johnson is set to be executed by lethal injection. If it goes through and the governor doesn't stop it, this would be the fourth... Tennessee death row inmate to be executed since August. We have with us here today, Adam Tamarin. He is our justice reporter who's been covering this case and is right now set to be a witness to this execution. Adam, thanks for coming
2: on. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay. So tell us a little bit about uh, Donnie Johnson's case briefly and about where it stands right now with where the governor is on uh, making a decision.
2: So Donnie Johnson has been on death row since the 80s. He was convicted of killing his wife, Connie Johnson, in 1984 in Memphis. Um, and it, it was a pretty gruesome scene, um, all told, from the, the folks who were still there who have who, been able to talk to us. Um, he suffocated her by stuffing a trash bag down her throat. So it's a pretty horrific scene. Donnie Johnson and his legal team do not um, quibble with that. He, has not, he no longer contests his guilt. He um, instead has really focused on his transformation behind bars. So he's talked about how he um, committed to Christianity uh, and became an elder in the Seventh-day Adventist church um, while uh, in prison. And and the
1: the Seventh Day Adventist Church has has actively been um, asking the governor on his behalf to 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 grant mercy. Uh, We had a story about that by Holly Meyer as well. Um, But anyway, yeah, continue.
2: So so that has really been his only plea to stop this. I think a lot of times when we have watched these last three uh, condemned uh, inmates come up for execution, we've seen a flurry of last minute legal challenges and legal filings. There really hasn't been that. There's been um, this. They've really put all of their eggs in this basket of asking the governor to, to stop this based on the transformation that Donnie Johnson has shown behind bars. And a lot of people have talked to, to us about that. His spiritual advisor has brought his family, including his young children, to see Don for 15 years. Uh, and we've heard from churches, we've heard from religious leaders, um, there's been this really intense focus on transformation. And our legal system doesn't really have a way to recognize that. There's no mechanism to say, okay, well, you have become a different person, so we're not going to meet out this punishment. So that's really something only Governor Lee can decide. Well,
0: Adam, this is one of the more interesting uh, cases because it's the first for Governor Lee. Uh, the last three were with Governor Bill Haslam. Uh, what's been kind of the the initial reaction? that the governor has had, and he's somebody that is really stressed, you know, uh, sort of giving people a second chance. I mean, he's, he's in and out of uh, prisoners, uh, prisons visiting with uh, with inmates uh, frequently.
2: Yeah, so with Governor Haslam, we kind of got a pattern for how these things played out. He really said this over and over again. He didn't want to be the 13th juror and insert himself into a justice system that had already played out. Um there is no uh, playbook for Governor Lee. Uh, Governor Lee talked on the stump when he was campaigning about how important his religion is to him. So it's interesting to see him considering a case where the whole case for redemption and for clemency is is religion. And um, you're right. Uh, Governor Lee has spent a lot of time uh, in private life uh, working with inmates and talking about redemption that's possible in the criminal justice system. So yeah, he's how, been
1: he's been active in rehabilitation efforts right. for for decades now, and and not just that, but actually going into prisons and building relationships with people. So certainly, I mean, he has he has more I think more experience or more exposure to that world than than Haslam did. So I think his perspective uh, is going to be much different than Haslam's was.
2: It's interesting, and it's interesting that he's. Coming, you know, Haslam was years into office when he considered his first um death penalty case. Uh this is what, four months in mm-hmm. uh, to Governor Lee's term. So it's a really uh heavy decision we've heard from Senator Alexander talking about how even thinking about considering that was maybe one of the hardest things he he grappled with as governor. So it's gonna be really interesting to see uh, as of Tuesday morning, uh, so three days before the execution was set to take place, Governor Lee has said he's still thinking about it and still considering it. We just published a story Tuesday morning that said that, so we don't really know. It could it, this could stretch out until like the minutes before the execution. We don't know when it's going to come, and we really have no idea uh, how he's going to handle this.
0: Adam, you had a, a remarkable interview that you did with Donnie Johnson via the lawyer. Uh, that you were sending questions back and forth. Tell us, how did that come about? And uh, you know w- what was kind of the great lessons that you got out of that piece?
2: Well, uh, I've, we've been talking a lot with uh, Donnie's legal team. They've been really out front on this case, because I think their thought process is this isn't an argument that has to play out in a court. We've given up those legal arguments. And actually, Donnie Johnson said, I don't want any more legal filings. So this is really an argument that happens somewhere else. This happens on the outside. And so they've been very external, I think purposefully in this case. And while we were talking about it, um, we asked if we could send some questions through. And what Donnie Johnson told me through his attorneys, they kind of, they transcribed his answers and, and sent them to me, is that he is a piece. He's ready. I think he understands. He's had several execution dates set before that have been moved. And he, I think he knows this is it. This is the one. It's either going to happen or he'll get clemency. And um, from what he said and from what his close advisors and friends have said is that he is he's a man at peace with whatever happens.
1: Adam, thanks for coming on. Uh, We'll we'll look to your coverage throughout the week ahead of this to see if there's any developments and certainly on Thursday night.
2: Thank you.
0: And as we look to wrap up our notebook dump, a second federal lawsuit over a recently passed voter registration law has been filed. Uh, This latest lawsuit comes from a group, including the ACLU, essentially saying that the voter registration law violated uh, several uh, federal laws and they will be taking the case uh, to court now.
1: And just several months after being reappointed as Department of Commerce and Insurance Commissioner by Governor Lee, uh, Julie Mix-McPeak has announced that she is leaving state government to pursue other opportunities in the private sector. Uh, She had been in in that role for a number of years since Governor Hasma appointed her in 2011, and her last day will be mid-June.
0: That's it for this week of Grand Divisions. As always, you can find us on podcast uh, locations, wherever you get them, iTunes, Spreaker, etc. Uh, please continue to rate us if you can. This podcast is always available on Tuesdays and is produced by John Garcia and Erica Whitney. Uh, next week, we might have to be a little bit flexible depending on uh, the timing of its release so we can accommodate uh, the latest with this caucus meeting. So please uh, just check back on Tuesday and we shall have an update. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. We'll see you next week.